Hey, welcome to Life Church. We pray this blesses you and empowers you for your week ahead. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, good morning, church. How are you all doing today? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you seriously. How are you doing today? Elated. Elated, really good after that worship. Nothing lifts the spirits. Oh, I've got to drop this down. There we go, that's better. Oh, awesome, there we go. You can hear me better. Uh, it's really good to be with you guys this morning and uh, what an amazing time of worship. What a, just does something, doesn't it? Wherever we're coming from, whatever we're going through when we get together as the people of God and we worship together, It's a reminder that whatever is happening in this world is not more powerful, it's not stronger, it's not got more authority than the God who has saved us. And uh, that's really what I wanna speak to you about today because I am well aware, Kitan mentioned it uh, when she was praying for us a bit earlier and Wale in the offering mentioned it as well. It is, there is so much craziness going on in this world around us. Like, if you are honest, I'm gonna ask you to put your hand up. You can if you want, I don't wanna bum everybody out. But how many people have noticed that 2022 did not turn out to be the year we were hoping it would be after the last two years, right? And that's like just the news, right? Don't even get into the personal stuff. And I think that after the, the years that we have had, the difficulties that we have faced as nations, as whole continents, as cultures, as people, it can be very difficult for us to remember that there is nothing more filled with hope for the future than the news that Jesus has brought of the kingdom of God. We are not a people who are saved and called to fear and to anxiety, but we live with a confidence that sometimes we just gotta be reminded that we carry. And so today I wanna speak to you about the reality of the tension that we find ourselves living in. And it's a little bit tricky to do this because I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've moved Um, around at all, if you've moved around different parts of the country, if you've come from a different place, you will notice that there are differences in language, right? Sometimes the things that we say mean something different to different people, okay? If you move to Yorkshire and you are not from Yorkshire, you will know that that is the case with almost every single word. Yorkshire has its own language, okay? And I've got a very good friend who actually a few weeks ago, we sat them down and we were like, you just gotta educate us. Just explain to us all of the Yorkshire language because sometimes we can say things and what we think it means is not the truth. And, and I wonder if you've noticed that the world has given a new definition to the word hope. And, and something that I am slightly concerned about is that when we speak about the hope that we have, that we don't understand the power that is in that word. That the hope that the Bible speaks of is not the hope that the world offers us. And the hope that the world promises and everything that is out there is not the hope that God promises because it does not have the power to sustain us that Jesus does. 
And, and I thought the best way to illustrate this was to give you a little example. I grew up in South Africa, as you know. I feel like every time I mention South Africa, it's just something, I think it's in my contract, mention South Africa every time you speak. <laughs> but uh, South Africa is a place of hope. Like, you have to have hope to live in South Africa, right? We're resilient people, but we have a, a horrible past. There's just so many countries. And hope is literally what gets all of us out of bed in the morning. Hope for the future. And so one day, this was many years ago, I was walking through the city center of, of the city that we grew up in, that Bernardine and I both grew up in. And I found myself going to kind of the home office that we have, like the home office, and I'd gone back to the car to get something. It was parked in this deserted street. And I kind of just went to the car, did my business. And as I was walking back along the street that I was very sure was empty, I felt this light touch on my back. And I instinctively, for some reason, looked down. And as I looked down, I saw this bone-handled knife across my stomach like that. It was about that long. And my first thought was, I really hope this is Tim. Now, Tim is my best mate, and he was best man at our wedding, and I almost turned around and said, Tim, what are you doing running around the city with a knife scaring people? And it wasn't Tim, obviously, right? I, I just had this, this hope. I hope this is Tim, and I turned around. It was a, a very nice gentleman who relieved me of my mobile phone and the contents of my wallet, and then politely sent me on my way. And, um, you know, we'll pray, pray for him, pray for him. Um, but in that moment, I remember having a hope. And the hope was impossible in the face of the reality. You see, when we read in the Bible of hope, sometimes we can have that image in mind and just think, oh, well, I really hope that this is, I just hope it's something good. I just, it's almost this fleeting feeling, like we see this promise of God and we just go, well, well I hope it's really true. And the more that the world seems to descend into chaos and we look at the things that are happening around us and we, we see the stuff on the news, we listen to the cost of living crisis and we see the, the, the price cap for the energy bills and we see what's happening in Europe and in Africa and in the Middle East and in Asia and in South America and, in all, and all over the place, we can really get caught up in this idea that actually, I just hope God is gonna do something. Well, well I kind of hope that he's got this in hand, but if he doesn't, I've got a plan to look after myself. That's another thing South Africans can tell you, right? We all have a plan, just in case, because I hope that God's got it, but if he doesn't, we got a plan to get out of here, right? That's not the hope that the Bible speaks of. The hope that Scripture speaks of is different to worldly hope in three ways. The first one is assurance. When, when the Bible speaks of hope, it is an assured hope. It's not a fleeting, I hope it's gonna happen. It is a, I know this will happen. There is an assurance to it. It is also a, what I call a now but not yet kind of hope. It is an acceptance of the current reality in which we have been transformed but knowing that whatever God is doing has not yet come to pass. And there's a big difference between what God has promised not yet coming to pass and what God has promised not coming to pass. So there's an assurance, there's, a, there's the now and not yet, and that leads us to a tension in which we must live. And that's where we find ourselves today. And, and I wanna give you something that I hope will encourage you. Just like every single person 
who for the last 2,000 years has professed Jesus as Lord, we face things that do not surprise God. We have a tension to manage, to live with. But the tension will not overcome us. And so I've called this message today the anchor of our souls. Because hope, Scripture teaches, this kind of biblical hope anchors us. When, the, when life gets stormy and when it starts to blow us around and it starts to threaten to overwhelm us, we have got something that holds us fast in place. And I think we could all do with a bit of reminding that this world and what is happening out there is not going to push us back. Amen. So what I wanna do is I want us to look at the book of Hebrews and specifically chapter six. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter six and we're gonna unpack just seven verses that dive into this realm of hope. But before we do that, I wanna give you a little bit of background to Hebrews because I think it's really important that we understand what I've just said. We are not the first people to go through enormous difficulty. And in the first century, Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were in the tension of their faith and the reality of their world. It's, it's quite a, if you've ever read Hebrews, it's a very interesting, intricate, detailed book. It's actually a sermon. The whole of Hebrews can actually be considered a sermon because it is written specifically to encourage and to what's called exhort. Exhort is to say, let's pull together, let's get ourselves sorted, let's carry on moving forward. And it's written as a sermon. Now, we don't know who the author was. He doesn't identify himself or herself in Scripture. I just said that out loud, herself, I imagine that. Herself, yeah, let's go, lady. There we go, girl power. Um, But they don't identify themselves, this author. And they don't identify the group of Christians that they're writing to. However... What we do know is that in the time that Hebrews would have been written, which is about 30 years after Jesus died and then rose again and ascended to heaven, there was a group of Christians living in Rome just before the first great persecution broke out against the church. And it was this persecution which saw the deaths of people like Peter and Paul as the the, the leadership of the empire, the Roman emperors sought to stamp out the Christian faith. And so Hebrews is written to a church that is made up of largely Jewish descendants, people who had been probably at the, in Jerusalem when Peter preached in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost and they went back to Rome with the good news, they were saved, they established the church and they went on for 30 years all fired up in their faith and nothing happened. And in fact, their lives started to get more and more difficult as the years went by. They could feel, they could sense the change in atmosphere as the the empire became harsher towards them. You could feel the shift taking place. And so there was a growing sense of fear, of anxiety, of uncertainty, and there was a real danger that actually it was safer to turn away from your faith because the things of the world seemed as though they could protect you a lot more than this Jesus who we once professed. And so Hebrews is written to this group of people. Now our circumstances might be slightly different in that we're not facing that level of persecution, but I think the author of Hebrews would want to remind us 
that what is, what is attractive to us in the sense of protection, in the sense of hopefulness, will not be found in the world. It is not worth walking away from our first love, Jesus, to find safety because outside of him there is no safety. And so Hebrews chapter six, verses 13 to 20, dive straight into not only the first century difficulties that these Christians were facing, but also the antidote for our hopelessness today. It'll be up on the screen. We're gonna read through these seven verses real quick. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank God for his word. Now, as I read that text, there's three things that stand out to me and they really grab my attention. And they grabbed my attention years and years and years ago when I was a young Christian, and to this day, they have not changed. The first is this. Did you notice in that text that what we seem to see about this idea of hope is that hope is built on the certainty of God's promise? It's not got anything to do with us. We are not the ones on whom this hope depends. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear that if God promises something, he will see it through. This is what he starts with. To encourage the church, he goes, remember when God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise was twofold. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 19, there's the story where Abraham receives the promise from God. And God essentially tells Abraham these two things. You will, have, you will have the son and through the son will come a nation through whom all nations will be blessed. And I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and you will never be overcome by your enemies. And what we have in the Old Testament is a long, long 3,000 year history of God's faithfulness to the descendants of Abraham. That, that, that the author of Hebrews is saying not even time can make God forget. Oh, I forgot about Abraham. I forgot to look after them. I forgot to bless them. I forgot to protect them. He says, look today at the faithfulness of God. He made a promise and he swore by himself. God promised Abraham a son and many descendants. He promised David that he would become king. He promised the nation of Israel a home and he promised the world a savior. Our Old Testament is a testament to the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what it is. And God doesn't have anybody else 
by whom he can say, this is the surety, this is the assurance of the promise. By who he is, the idea that God cannot keep his promise doesn't even enter the equation. You know, sometimes you and I, right, if we're really honest, I know you're all incredibly amazing people, but sometimes we make promises Sometimes we don't even have any intention in keeping them, let's be honest, right? It's like, I promise I'm going to, I do this, when you get married, you do this all the time. It's like, I promise I'm going to paint that mark. I promise I'm gonna, uh, there's all kinds of things. I've gotta be careful, my landlord's here, so I don't wanna say too much about the state of the house. But, um, <laughs> but we make all these promises, right? And sometimes, if we're honest, we just have no intention of keeping that promise. This word means something entirely different to God. The the Old Testament Hebrew understanding was that God is so powerful, the word is sovereign, that when he speaks, that word carries his authority. It departs his mouth and it is established. That's why God spoke the world into creation. If God promises something, it is impossible for that promise not to become fulfilled. So it's not a question of if God keeps his promises, it's when God, when God. You see, God cannot lie. Verse 13 and 14, Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So he sworn upon himself to bring all of us into the family of Abraham. While I mentioned one of the verses I have today, Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he would lie. He is not man that he would repent. God is faithful to his promises. Verse 15 goes on to say, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That is a part of this idea of hope that sometimes I struggle with, and I think you might join me on that. God keeps his promises, but his promises do not fulfill our timeline. Abraham received a promise from God. He didn't have to go off and do everything to make sure that the promise was fulfilled, but what he did was wait patiently. And in every single commentary that I read, every single author highlights that word patiently. Not wait, but patiently. Why? Because we are not very good at waiting patiently, right? That is the difficulty. We will wait, but, but sometimes that waiting reaches a point and now it's God, come on, knocking on the door. Where are you? You haven't arrived. Have you forgotten about me? Where have you been? Abraham waited patiently and then the author of Hebrews holds him up as an example for us and says, just like Abraham, wait, hold fast. And the reason for that is not because God is trying to mess with us in any way, But the reason is that sometimes, very often in fact, what happens in the waiting is more powerful than the fulfillment of the promise. There's something that takes place in that waiting all through Abraham's story and the story of his descendants. The waiting led to a developing of the character required to be the people of God. And God worked within them and he worked through them, and he worked for them. But they waited, and they waited patiently. Abraham was patient. We can wait patiently as well. As we wait patiently in this tension, our hope lies in the fact that although I cannot yet see it, I know that God cannot lie. 
Whatever He has spoken will come to pass. The promise will be fulfilled. And we draw our strength from that place. So that's the first point that I see in Hebrews, that this hope is built on the certainty of God's promise. The second thing is this, this hope, biblical hope, does not change. Hebrews 6, 17 says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the inheritors of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. In other words, when God desired to show us Christians, us believers who inherit this promise that God made with Abraham and we become children of the same promise, he desired to show it to us more convincingly. And so by these two things in which God cannot lie, unchangeable truths, what are the unchangeable truths that the author is speaking about? He's speaking about God's promise and he's speaking about God's oath to fulfill the promise. Uh, the, the, the promise itself, it's not like God sometimes finds a detour, right? And goes, well, actually, that promise isn't really gonna work out after all, so I'm gonna keep the promise, but I'm gonna change it a little bit. It's gonna look a little bit different. This is an unchangeable God whom we serve. And so the author of Hebrew int intends for us to draw comfort from this truth. The promise is not changed by our circumstances, by our events, or by our projections. There is nothing in a created world that can change the promises of the Creator. And what I find really important as we consider waiting patiently in hope for what God is doing, the fulfillment of that promise, is to remember that He is sovereign. That word sovereign, it carries so much power. It means that he is above all things. Paul unpacks this in Colossians when he actually says about Jesus, he says, for he was before all things and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. That there is nothing that God depends upon, so there is nothing that can affect the promise. This is sometimes how we see it. We know that circumstances hugely affect the direction of our lives. They drain us, they drain our hope, our peace, our energy. Because we know that reality is reality. The cost of living crisis comes up. The energy bills go up. The assignment didn't go so well. Whatever it might look like in our reality, it affects us because we are human, but it does not affect the God who has saved and redeemed us. His promise is not put on hold by a world that is descending into chaos. He is fulfilling the word that he spoke. And that is a word of salvation and redemption and his kingdom coming to this earth. He's not affected by what affects us. So the promise is unchangeable. If the promise is unchangeable, our hope in the promise is unchangeable. What happens to us does not affect what is happening for us. So the promise that God made to Abraham, which he displayed on the cross, Jesus on the cross, the fulfillment of the first part of God's promise to Abraham, you will have all of these children, these descendants, they will be my people and I will be with them and we become the children of God through Jesus on the cross, did not change. It did not change long after Abraham was no longer here and it has not changed to this day. 
This hope is what carries us through storms and does not let us break. And so thousands of years later, we as heirs of this promise that has not changed, we share in the hope that carried Abraham and every generation after him through every trial and ordeal that God is with us, that God is for us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he fights the battle. God fights for us. That he did not save us to abandon us. You are his child and he is with you. And the third point is simply this, that this hope, biblical hope, is our anchor. There's a little verse in James chapter one that speaks about doubting. And it says that those who doubt are like waves in the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. And sometimes I think that's what life does to us. It blows us about and we kind of find ourselves going from here to there to there in the search for what? For hope. But the hope that we have in Christ anchors us so that we are unmovable. We are able to then run through fear and uncertainty. The reality is we will face those things, but they will not get into us. They will not push us backwards. They will not move us. We count the cost and we move as God moves. Verse 18 of Hebrews says, so that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. This hope is designed to encourage us to keep on going. We don't stop because the world is crazy. We don't stop because we're facing an obstacle. We don't stop because the mountain is before us. We keep on going. It's not gonna move us. We're anchored with Christ. Now this is really important because what this hope does is it actually raises our expectations so that despite what is going on around us, I still believe that God will do what he said. I expect him. If you think about it, you have an assurance of something. I will walk out of those doors and God is there. He is in the moment. He is working when I am unable to work. So the expectation gets raised. If the expectation is raised, our potential gets raised. You think about it, you're expecting to see God work. There is, there's something that that does to who you are in moments. There are conversations, there, are, there is witnessing, there are prayers. There are all kinds of things that you will do because you know that on the other side, it's not you who makes this happen, it is God who makes this happen. So when I see somebody who needs to hear about Jesus, it's not, it's not my power that does anything in that person's life. But there's a confidence because when I speak Jesus to that person, it is the Holy Spirit of God who is there and he does the work. So our potential gets raised and therefore our impact is raised. You have a higher expectation, you have a higher potential, you will have a higher impact. God uses us when we expect him to use us. What does that expectation look like? Simply when we seek him. That's that's simply it, when we're seeking God in every moment, not what the enemy is up to, not what the broken world is doing, but what is God doing? Despite that difficulty, despite that confusion, despite that fear, God is there. What is he doing? What is he doing? So we have fled, I mean, think about it, as believers, 
saved by Jesus. We have fled what the scripture calls the bondage of sin and fear. And we live free in grace and truth. There is freedom. There is freedom for all in Christ. So we take hold of this hope by trusting in the promise of God. And this is where it culminates this, this story of hope. Verse 19 to 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He uses the author, the illustration of an anchor. And we all know that an anchor on a ship holds a ship safely in place and is designed to be used, right, when the ship is in danger. But then he uses some other imagery. Now, the people who got this letter first, they would understand the language, but we need a little help unpacking it. And what he means is in the temple of the Old Testament, the Jewish people believed that God resided in a place of the temple, that he actually lived in what was called the Holy of Holies. And when the author of Hebrews is trying to get an understanding of just how anchored, just how secure, just how safe we are in Christ across to us. He gives us this little line where he says that we are anchored by Jesus who has entered into the holy of holies, that most holy place. The image is this, wherever God dwells in heaven, right? We know that God is everywhere, but he gives us this imagery of God dwelling somewhere. That is where you are anchored, in the most holy of places, in the very presence of God himself, you are being held in place. Now, I don't know about you, but what that does is that makes me look at what this world is doing and go, come on. I don't wanna tempt it, but it's almost like you can do a bit better. Like, there is nothing that can unseat that anchoring. There is nothing that can shake that. The very God who created us and saved us and is with us is the one who holds us in place when the storms hit. An anchored believer does not live a life of fear, anxiety, worry, and panic. It doesn't mean that we don't experience those things. It means that they don't control us. Because an anchored believer is filled with a peace, with a joy, with a hope that only Jesus can give to us. An anchored believer knows that we are anchored in the holiest of places. And even though we may see the storm raging all around us, even though there is confusion, even though there is fear, there is a peace that comes from this hope. So how do we do it? Sounds great, right? Sounds fantastic. Let's leave here all fired up and then we hit a storm and what do we actually do? In everything that the New Testament teaches us, when we find ourselves facing the storms of life, the reality and the tension that comes with being a follower of Jesus, instead of trying to put our hands on everything and piece it all together, the New Testament simply reminds us who Jesus is. It simply reminds us of his authority and his power. And I'd love to give you like a 10-step plan that you can go and put into place, right? Like, oh, here's my storm, here's my 10 steps to fix it. Some of us love that kind of thing. 
But there's something more powerful. And that is the Christ who is in you and the Christ who is with you. When we face the storms, we don't look. Aaron said it beautifully last week about a different topic. I'm not just stealing his sermon, by the way, a different topic. But he said it beautifully. When you're, when you're looking at the world, you don't speak about the world. You speak about Jesus. You speak about who he is. You think about who he is. You remind yourself who he is and you remind yourself who you are in him. So who is this Jesus? Well, there's a lot to say on who Jesus is and I don't have the time to do all of that. But I wanna give you something that has encouraged me hugely in every storm that I've faced to do just this, to go back to that place of being anchored and to say, this is who my king is. This is the authority and this is the power. And it's from the late, great Dr. Lockridge who was a Baptist pastor many, many decades ago. And it reminds us of the power, the majesty, and the wonder of Jesus. But I will say this before I go. When those storms continue to rage, you just keep reminding yourself and reminding that storm who your king is. Your king is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Thanks for joining us. We pray you feel encouraged by this word. We would love to hear from you, so why not connect with us via the website at lifechurchhome.com or on our socials at Life Church Home. Have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.